Hey everyone, this is your host, Guns, and welcome to another episode of the Seed Table Podcast, where we try to make sense of what is going on in European technology. My guest today is Pietro Invernizzi. Pietro is an investor at Stride, the London-based venture capital firm, investing first checks in pre-seed companies alongside Fred Dustin and Harry Stebbings. Before joining Stride, Pietro entered the startup world four years ago through the family, where he spent most of his time helping founders raise money from top angel investors and VCs. He has also made several angel investments himself. In today's conversation, Pietro and I talk about why Twitter is two social networks and not just one, how to use writing as a decision-making framework, how Pietro evaluates potential investing deals and his advice to pre-seed founders looking to raise their first round, tips and tricks for people who are thinking about trying to get into VC, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Welcome to the Seed Table podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Gans. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So one of my favorite things uh, about the podcast is putting a face to the name to people I meet on Twitter. And I've been meaning to do this for a while. So let's start with that. Sort of what's your mental model for Twitter? So I'm actually very addicted to Twitter, which is quite common in the startup world. Once you click with it, I feel like it's very difficult to do without it. Although we all complain about, you know, VC Twitter or startup Twitter to be always the same things and people bragging all the time about the investment rounds that they lead or the startup successes that they have. This said, I think overall Twitter is an unbelievably powerful tool. I've met dozens and dozens of extremely good friends through Twitter. And I think especially in Europe, it's uh, underutilized for many, for many things. So first of all, how I started on Twitter was actually using it as a means for myself to learn. So both by just lurking around and reading about the things that all the other tech folks would have to say, both on the startup founder side of things and the investor side of things. The beauty of the startup world is that everyone is very open to sharing their knowledge and their frameworks on Twitter, probably more so than on other platforms that I've seen so far. And so I would just start using it, looking around, what is this investor saying? What can I learn from this founder? And then I was, I started thinking, I could actually do something about this. I could write summaries about what's out there on Twitter and start producing my own content, which is not going to start particularly original, but it could help other people learn as I learn. And so I could learn in public through Twitter. And so I started writing this big threads of threads. So threads in which I would list all of the most exciting tweets or all of the most exciting threads that I would read over the last, let's say, like few months or a few weeks, and then share them with the world. Uh, and it, it was a very powerful way of doing things because it would always notify the people that I would tag. So say if I share 10 threads from 10 different founders and VCs, they would see it. And then they would, I, I realized without me even looking for it, they started engaging with it. And so I realized that then there's a second powerful dimension of Twitter, which is the DMs. So people sending me messages saying, ah, oh, thanks for featuring me. What you're doing at Stride is super interesting. Let's chat. And so it, the moment you start engaging with it and becoming addicted to it as I did, you start realizing that there are so many different layers of connecting with people and, and meeting people uh, and learning in public or privately that I just think it's a very it's a very good platform. And I guess the fact that we met through it and through our friend Fabri on Twitter is a, is a great uh, sign of that. So I would love to hear how, how you think about Twitter and, and what, what you get from it the most. Yeah. Yeah, I think I have a very similar relationship to Twitter. I started by being a lurker, really. That's, it was sort of how I consumed information, essentially, because I could curate sort of by following the right people and the right sort of news sources. So I had like startups, but I also had like football and Argentinian politics. Now it's like mostly European <laughs> tech, like 99%, but that's sort of how I started. 
and it could be sort of my like ultimate place to go and consume stuff. But at some point, and I think it was when I really f- built my first relationship via Twitter that I realized like, shit, like this is not like a newspaper. This is like a whole new sort of social network where very, very cool things are happening. And where sort of very, very smart people are say- saying things in public that you would normally have to pay thousands <laughs> of dollars for. So... And then you can actually respond to that people and engage with them in the DMs. And sort of the DMs to me is a whole different thing because I've been having this same conversation multiple times with friends and with multiple guests that like there's a second social network in Twitter, which is really the the DMs. Like a bunch of stuff happens uh, behind the scenes that's probably even more interesting than what's going on in public. But to me, like Twitter is a learning mechanism. Twitter is a networking uh, mechanism, and sometimes it's a forcing function. Because by force of, let's say, saying something out loud, I'm suddenly accountable to thousands, right? So that's that's helpful as well. And I, I also want to say it, it's like, it's a great marketing mechanism. It's great for my newsletter, for my podcast, for my sort of audience. So, and I, I think you agree with that as well, because... You, you like Twitter is one of your main sort of promotion mechanisms for those market maps that you put out there. Hundred <laughs> percent. No, I I agree. Twitter is uh, for people like us in the startup world. It's probably one of the top marketing channels for sure. And yes, so I try to write content, not a lot of content, but I try to write maybe let's say hard hitting pieces every couple of months. And whenever I do. I definitely use Twitter as my number one channel to to promote them. And so far, I guess what's been useful about it is not necessarily the amount of views or, or clicks that I get on it on Twitter, but mostly the curation of uh, following. So because I use Twitter since day one, and I've always been tweeting about the same topics, which have, has predominantly been around startups and fundraising and founders, the founder journey and so on, all of my followers, which are not not a particularly like massive amount, but they all like that type of stuff. And so the engagement that I get by sharing something on Twitter, as opposed to say LinkedIn is, is completely different. Because if I share something related to startups on Twitter, uh, sorry, on, on LinkedIn, which I do still all the time, it, it may very well be the case that some ex-colleague investment banker of mine will reach out to talk about how they can help our company's IPO, which is obviously not not a particularly useful topic right now. But yeah, so absolutely love, love Twitter as a marketing channel. You don't put too much content out there, but when you do, it's like mind-blowing. You have one of the sort of the better sort of insights to words ratio I've found because that's, that's, I think that that takes skill because I write a bunch and I write every week, but sort of I think my insights to worst ratio is much, much lower. So how do you pick the topics that you write about? Thank you so much, Gons, first of all. That's a very, very uh, big compliment coming from you. How do I think about writing and how do I pick my topics? So, so far, it's always been extremely driven by my daily activities and by my day jobs, let's say. It, it all started, so I've always been writing, I've not always been writing, but I always loved writing. When I was a kid, I would have a lot of fun writing uh, for school and trying to imagine what my teachers would want me to write to get the best mark. And I've always done writing for myself, sometimes to take decisions. So for instance, what should be my uh, next step career-wise? Like five years ago, I was thinking, do I go into banking? Do I go into the startup world? And I always write down choices and options and then try to assess them in, in, in written form. So, and, and how does that, let's say, translate to now and the topics that I write about now? It's, it's very opportunistic, let's say. So during the day, I am at a meeting with my partners at Stride, Harry and Fred, and we talk to a founder about raising their next round and about how we can make sure that we optimize the process from talking to all of the best investors as possible, getting a, a very compelling story for the raise and all of that. And then, I'm, and then I think, actually, you know what? What I've learned today at this meeting 
could help a lot of people because a lot of founders are out there every day trying to face challenges like this. And so why do I not write about this? Another one is the market maps that you were mentioning before. And those are becoming one of my favorite ways of, of delivering content. So for context, market maps is essentially just me digging deep into a certain sector, which could be the future of work and collaboration or climate tech software or fashion economy or anything like that. So why do I do that or how do I get there? It, it normally starts from me just talking to founders which is my daily job. So my daily job is talking to four to five different founders every day. And sometimes by talking to all of these founders who are extremely passionate and fascinating humans, I get to see what they work on. And after three months in which I realized that 20 of them uh, or 30 of them are all moving or gravitating towards building software or building companies around a certain sector, I think, you know what, there could be something here. Why do I not just write about it? And this doesn't necessarily mean that it's spaces that I love or that I'm into or that I just, I only invest in this space because I try to be extremely, again, founder driven when it comes to the sectors that I look at as an investor. But it's more about where do the best founders want to go and why don't we help the world learning about those sectors? And so that's what I did. I've, I've done in the last last week when I posted about the climate tech software space, uh, because I've, I've seen many amazing founders tackling it. Do you also do that as a way to really sort of understand all the intricacies of a market, right? Because you're sort of forced to just lay it out in the open and do it very, very clearly. And as sort of one of the consequences of that, I think, would be understanding it even more. 100%. So it's a way for me first to understand the market, which I find always very helpful to do in written form. Because the only way for someone, at least for me, to really understand something is being able to teach it to someone else. And so writing it really forces you to do that, exactly as you say. And a second and probably even bigger reason to why I try to write market maps or pieces of research like that is for the value that it adds to my, to my job. And so as an investor writing about a certain space in such amounts of detail is likely if you if you do it in an original way is likely to attract people to reach out to you and i try to add in little hacks like oh if you think i forgot you on this map reach out to me or people just see it they think the future of work or climate tech interesting this person knows about the space, although in most cases I don't really, but you know, it's, it, I'm still interested. Uh, and so it offers a, a very good way for, for me to talk to founders. But then the most important and less known benefit of writing uh, research pieces like that is actually for myself to be able to reach out to the people that I want to. Because uh, there are, as you say on Twitter, there are always incredible investors, founders, like talking about certain topics. And in my head, I already know which people I would love to speak to. Or sometimes I see founders who are very interesting in a certain topic, but I'm not connected to them. And I wouldn't really have a great way to reach out to them through a cold email saying, hi, I'm Pietro, let's chat, because maybe 20 more people do that. And so what these research pieces do, they give me a perfect excuse to reach out to those people saying, hey, I saw that you're building something in this space and I've done a lot of research in it. I think your angle is actually very interesting because X, Y, Z. Do you want to chat? And that's probably the most helpful bit of why I do those pieces. Smart. Thinking <laughs> <laughs> and smart. <laughs> those maps are essentially an excuse to cold outreach. I like it. <laughs> Literally, that's the whole uh, master plan. Uh... Uh, that's a pretty good master plan. So you, you mentioned something that you, you said you, when you make decisions, you write both both options. Or you, so walk me through that decision-making process. Yeah, so that, let's say, strategy is probably much simpler when I talk about it than, than it is in my head. But how it works is that whenever there is a decision to be made or two or three different options, I try to write them down. And then for each of them, trying to imagine myself taking that option and seeing whether I would be happy with it or not. So as a, as a simple example, 
before working at Stride, I was working at The Family, which is this very funky French version of YC that I'm sure you've, you've worked with or, or know about. And once I realized that it was time for my next step, I started laying out all the different options because it's such an important um, choice in your life that I thought I'd take all the time I needed to get to as close as possible to the truth as to what I really wanted to do. And so I started writing down all of the different options of what I could do. I, I know that I love the startup world. I want to be in it forever. How do I stay in it in the best of ways for myself? Do I join a startup as an operator? And so operator was the first option, which then had two different branches because as an operator, I could have perhaps joined an early stage startup or a later stage startup. And then perhaps there is a second option, which is me launching my own company as a founder. So founder journey is, is another option or even differently joining a fund as an investor and staying on the investment side and trying to build my skills as an investor for the long term. So once I identified those, let's say, options with all of their different derivations, I started trying to picture myself and my personality into each of them and then seeing whether any of the daily activities into those roles would I would really enjoy. And I realized that the being an investor for many different reasons was was exactly what I wanted to do, mostly because of one big reason, which is the people side of things and the outward looking aspect of VC. So the fact that as a VC, your biggest, let's say, role is that of understanding people, especially if you invest at the very early stages. And I've always loved that. As I was telling you before, at school, I wasn't particularly studious, but I always loved to try to understand what my teachers wanted me to answer in their in, in their like essays to get the best grade possible. And that's something that not necessarily a skill, but it's a really, really big passion of mine. And I would love to base my future around that. And so I thought that would be a, a great, it, it would fit perfectly with what I want to do next. So there's just one example to show how writing down things can make it extremely clear what path you want to take or what decision you want to make. Yeah, very cool. It's like you're building this sort of a decision tree and then you're laying out what your future would look like in each one of them. And, and by writing, you sort of picture yourself in it. Uh, exactly, 100%. I might steal that. Uh, I might steal that. <laughs> Please do. If I so... show you my uh, my scribblings, uh, you're going to think I'm crazy. <laughs> um, so you, you were walking me through... Um, he, he sort of, you're you're using your decision to join Stride as uh, as an example. So uh, now I have to ask, like, what's the non bullshit story of how you joined Stride? I I, I don't want the PR version. Like, I have. <laughs> okay, okay, let's do this. So how it happened, non bullshit version is that I was not working at the family anymore. So I was looking for my next step, and that could have been anything, right? As I was saying before, the decision tree included lots of branches between joining a startup as an operator to build your operational muscle, or it could be start investing on your own through a syndicate. It could be join a VC fund or anything like that. So once I got to the top of the decision tree and I decided that I wanted to be an investor 100%, I started thinking about what type of investor I am and what type of investor I want to be in five years from now. And I was lucky to have an extremely clear picture of that. Like I already knew that I wanted to be investing at Pre-Seed because Pre-Seed is all about the people and the size of an opportunity as opposed to going nitty gritty into the data side of things. So investing when you have a very limited amount of data, which is actually what I love. And I already had a fairly clear idea of how my Pre-Seed fund of the future launched by myself would look like. So once that was achieved, I, I started thinking, okay, so now I know where I want to be in five years, but I don't know how to get there. So why do I not ask people who have already done it before how they got there? And so to do that, I uh, ended up contacting maybe like five of the VCs that I had in my network, the ones that had already built their own fund. And, I, and one of them was Fred at Stride. I, I literally just emailed saying, hey, I'm facing some important career decisions, do you want to chat? So we had the chat and it was hilarious because it was one of those mornings in which every morning of 
my week. I had a completely different view of the world and what I wanted to be. <laughs> <laughs> and that morning, as I was speaking to Fred, I said extremely clearly, I do. So this is what I've done in the last five years. This is where I want to be in five years from now. What do you think I should do? Bear in mind, I do not want to join a VC and I don't think I will join a VC ever. And so once I said that, <laughs> that must have triggered some sort of reverse, reverse psychology in Fred. And so he started saying, yeah, I know you don't really want to join a VC, but you know, at Stride, we're a bit different. And so we started bonding in general. We, we always had like extremely high quality conversations with, with Fred and Harry as well. And once they brought up the idea of pre-seed being a thing for them, and in general, just being open to speaking to someone in the context of joining their team, my eyes lit up because I've always been a big fan of Stride and it obviously changed my idea of not wanting to join OVC and uh, here I am. Yeah, yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. I was sort of thinking about taking a sabbatical and I said it very openly, I don't want to work for anyone right now. I want to take some time off and, and, and here I am doing full-time head of growth at Ondak and and doing seat table on top of that. So yeah, and I am eating my words right now. Yeah. And a podcast. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, like let's, let's, uh, that's, that's awesome. That's a great story. And it's, yeah, not the one I expected. So let's talk about pre-seed then. It's, it's what you're sort of interested in and, and fascinated by. And you said that it's mostly because about the people and, and about the sort of the psychology. It's about evaluating teams and evaluating markets and not just looking at profit and loss statements. So how do you evaluate deals then? Yeah, 100%. So pre-seed, as I see it, is first money into a company. So when it's just a couple of founders, potentially with a product MVP or a prototype uh, or just an idea. And it's the earliest stage in which you don't really have any other data to base your decision on. Do You don't know whether the company will ever manage to make money. You don't know whether the product is already amazing. You literally have to almost make yourself a child and base your decision on, am I excited to work with these people or not? Uh, because eventually that's what's going to determine um, your decision of whether to invest or not. And I love that because I get a kick from the feeling that I have after like having had one hour conversation with a person, when it goes beyond just, oh, what are you building and what's your customer acquisition cost and how are you going to acquire users? And when it goes the other direction, so what did you do? How did you grow up and where did you live before? And what did you, what were your side projects during school? What drives you as a human? Why are you building this company? Why do you think this company, like the world needs you to build this and all of the usual things that, that go a bit more personal. I absolutely love that. And Precede is the perfect, let's say, playground for that. And so your question was, how do I determine what's a good Precede investment? So obviously that's a billion dollar question that I have no answer for. But what I can answer is how I try to assess people in this context. And I guess like the first determinant is really whether so it's very personal and it's about whether i get excited to work with someone or not and i like how this is very unbiased in a way because it's not about whether the the person has a really strong personality or a very strong charisma it could be the most shy entrepreneur ever it could be the most charismatic leader in the world am i excited to spend my time working with them and this can happen with like the most diverse type of people ever. But for me, it's the most important one because eventually the idea is that in venture, if we are going to work together well, we're going to do so for the next five to 10 years at least. And I want to be able to wake up and be extremely excited by the idea of doing so. And so that's the first determinant. The second determinant is actually going a bit deeper into the analysis of the person. And this is actually very, very difficult. And there are so many traits that one may want to look for in founders. And actually at some point did a big piece of research about what the good VCs write in their, on their websites about what they look for in founders. And it's all about, you know, there's thousands of them, there's resilience, there's, we look for 
um, Very dragon slayers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we look, yeah, so there, there are thousands of them. I tried to build my own personal one, which I always use as a personal means of assessing people. And I also do that with writing. I actually try to write about a founder and see whether they qualify according to this criterion. And the criterion is humility. I think no matter how charismatic or shy or explosive or calm a founder is, the, the ones that I want to work with always show humility. And humility can be shown in hundreds of ways. It can be shown in the ways they interact with the people that work for them. If it could be shown in the way that they treat their interns, it could be shown in the way that they write emails or that they tweet. It could be shown how in how two co-founders talk to each other and whether they leave each other's space during a pitch call or a pitch meeting to e express their ideas. It could be shown into how much they could brag. So in how much potential for bragging they have and how much of that they actually use to brag or how much of that they use to just uplift others or how shy they get when you make compliments. It, it's literally in hundreds of different, it can be like poked out of founders in many different ways. And I always try to optimize for that because I think the leaders of the future are going to be humble founders who are not necessarily driven by money, but who feel like they just have to be founders because they have no other, let's say, drives. And that will do so with what I call humble confidence. So the idea of like uplifting others as opposed to just uplifting themselves. Yeah. Also, it's founding a startup. It's a very stupid way to make money. Like there are better ways to make money. <laughs> agreed. 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 100%. Uh, <laughs> like, how do you filter for false positives? Like, how do you know it's not fake humility? Yeah. So that's very difficult. And I think it's almost impossible to do at first meeting, which is why I normally try to spend more than one meeting with founders. And, you know, sometimes you just get it wrong, even if you meet them five times, because it's very difficult. And even now it's becoming even more difficult because you just don't have a chance to meet founders like four times before investing in them, because by the second meeting, they already have like five different term sheets from five different venture firms from all across the world. So it's becoming harder, but I feel like for the very, especially the founders who already achieved something before, you will see it quite clearly, whether they're faking humility or whether it's real, but maybe, maybe it's just me being biased and thinking that I do, but in my head, it's usually it's, it's quite obvious. If you, if you had to recommend sort of one resource or one book about psychology or body language, like, where do you learn all this? That was, <laughs> Man, my, that, that was really my question. Yeah. I'm just I, trying to put a, ask it in a way that's helpful to others, but what, or where the crap do you learn all this? <laughs> yeah. So I'm probably the worst person in the world to ask this because I have we very weird ways of learning. So I never learn from books. And I'm terrible at consuming long form content. So everything like I've actually done a bunch of studying about psychology and body language while I was studying at, at university, just on the side. And I'm still extremely fascinated by it and read about it all the time, but it's never been through books. It's always been through Google. I literally just like Google things and then try to dig deeper into things and sometimes write summaries on say like notion or on my on my laptop's notes about them but i wouldn't be able to point people towards any let's say author or or direction really do you but do, do you block time to google or is that how you do it because <laughs> the, the thing about a book is okay you grow a book and say okay it's book time uh, so you gotta read for like 30 minutes but like do you block time to just go spend time on Google about, I don't know, like body language or whatever you're interested in right now, or? No, so no, not really. It's always extremely random, which is good and bad. It's bad because lately I'm taking always less time to do it. So I should probably start blocking times in my calendar to do it. But until now, it's always been very driven by, let's say, passion. So one day I realized that people just all walk a bit differently. Some people walk 
on the tips of their toes, whereas other people walk mo much more grounded and like with their with their heels like on the ground all the time. And then I think, wow, that's quite interesting. Why do people do that? And I actually realized that there's there's meanings behind that stuff. And so I start Googling them and uh, and then I get deeper into the rabbit holes. And, and that's how it usually happened. But there's, yeah, there's there's no like systematic approach around that. And in case you're curious as to what the meanings are, I actually always walk uh, on the tips of my toes and people like my friends always make fun of me for that. But uh, what it means is that people who tend to be with their head in the clouds and so a bit more like not necessarily 100% uh, of the time, let's say in the real world, but sometimes a bit here and there with their brain traveling around, they sometimes tend to walk on the tips of their toes because it's almost like they're <laughs> trying to jump or in, yeah. in, their, in their heads. Yeah, quite. Yeah, very weird. cool. And I, I, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> There's actually a lot of clues like, that you can... Uh, that you can catch from uh, from body language and it's almost dangerous because you don't want to know too much but there are so many things you can you can figure out for instance if you meet someone while grocery shopping which is obviously not happening much these days but uh and from the direction of their feet while they speak to you you can understand whether they want to leave or <laughs> whether they're actually right, right, right. in the conversation things like that it's quite it's quite funny and interesting uh, how do you translate those skills to Zoom calls? Yeah, so you, I don't really, but except for one thing, which is actually making founders feel at ease. For me, it's one of the most important things ever from an investor call because pitching for founders and just like interacting with investors in general, it's such a stressful thing to go through that the easiest I can make it for them, the happier I am. And so I always try, as soon as I speak to the founders, to understand whether they're at ease or not. And I will always push to maybe, you know, like figure out clues and try to drive the call in a, in a direction that makes them feel more at ease. So for instance, I always try to pitch myself first before they pitch themselves so that then once they do it, it's like it's been done already in the call. And so it, they don't have to like break through this wall of silence uh, or this like yeah. table where someone on the other side is going to judge you. Or I always try to not make myself like take myself to serious on a call and maybe make jokes about myself because then they understand that like, you know, an investor is just like a completely normal person who sometimes is not even oftentimes is not even as smart as, as the founder or almost yeah. always. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's one of those tricks like, like, Sort of the first kiss at the beginning of the date instead of that at the end of the date, just to put people at ease. <laughs> exactly. That's a good one. I never, never used that. <laughs> uh, so l l let's keep going on the sort of the pre-seed uh, stage. So, so you were doing Series A at the family, and now you're doing pre-seed. Like, how, how do you see the pre-seed stage evolving? over the past few years? And where do you think it's going over the next couple? Yeah, so I always loved the European startup ecosystem because pre-seed was actually a thing here and is actually a thing here. So it's still, at least until one year ago, it was extremely common to find rounds where founders would raise maybe like 300,000 euros or pounds at a valuation of like 2.5 million post money in euros or pounds. And that would give them enough funds to maybe hire the first couple of people to get their product off the ground. And then if needed, raising like a much more like a bigger or normal seed round. Now it's becoming much more blurry what's pre-seed and what's seed with the influence of, let's say, the, the American style of fundraising, which is raise as much as you can when you can. And so it's becoming less and less common to see rounds smaller than 500,000 euros where founders will just like raise for their next, let's say 12 months to prove what they have to prove and then raise seed. Although what I like is that it's still, it's still happening. And my role at Stride is actually finding those, let's say rare opportunities. And yeah, I, I'm actually seeing more than I would expect 
given the craze of the market right now and what I was telling you before about the competition and if like 10 term sheets per company when a company is hot and, and all the crazy things we're seeing these days. Yeah, yeah. But it seems like I'm sort of thinking about the state of European tech report that came out this week. It seems that whatever fear we had about sort of a down market, like it's completely over. Like things are back to crazy. Yeah. Even more, like even more so, I'd say. 100%. Yeah. I think it's exciting, but it's it's scary. The only thing that doesn't, that makes me a bit less scared is that VCs have been saying that VC is a bubble for the last 20 years and the bubble never popped. But on the other side, it is actually scary because all these money being raised, uh, all this money being raised by founders at such an early stage makes me a bit scared about whether it's going to be spent well and efficiently and diligently. But we'll see. It's going to be a fun uh, a fun show for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You mentioned you put so much effort into sort of reading founders because you will need to be excited about working with them for the next decade. So let's talk about what happens after you invest. What sort of kind, what role do you take with those founders? How do you support them? Like, what are some non-obvious ways in which you can be helpful to, to sort of your portfolio companies? Yeah. So I've never been a startup founder or operator before. And so I always have this probably justified imposter syndrome of thinking that I'm not really able to help founders when it comes to strategy or operations or, or anything like that. But then what actually makes me happy about my role as a pre-seed investor is that very often that's not what founders need, or at least that's not the only thing that founders need. What most founders, or at least the ones that I've been lucky to work with, really need is someone that they can speak to whenever they want, really, and someone who is there to listen to their doubts, to give them reassurance about decisions that they have to make, or someone who can just have a double check at their board materials, or who can have a look at their deck before they send it to their next investors, or someone um, who they can also tell the bad stuff to. And so in my head, the most non-obvious way to really add value to founders is trying to be the person on their cap table that they can tell everything to. And this is something extremely diff difficult because from the moment that you're an investor, the relationship is a bit skewed because you're the investor, they're the founders, you gave them money. And so immediately they think, oh, if I say something negative, the investor will be angry or they will think that I'm losing all of their money. So I try extremely hard to make it very clear to founders that it's an investment and it's mostly an investment in them as people as opposed to in their company. And so even if it wasn't to work, I would still like, I, I, I don't want to say that we don't care because that would be a lie, but it, it's not what we care about. Like what we care about is definitely not whether they hit their numbers or whether they hit their figures is whether they're building a business sustainably and whether they're enjoying the journey and whether we can enjoy it together in some cases. And so I always try to get founders to be able to be in that position where they can tell me, oh, I'm feeling really down. And I actually love the fact that it happened to me. So two of the founders that I invested in as an angel, at some point, they literally texted me or one gave me a call saying, hey, man, look, I just wanted to talk to you. And I wanted to tell you that I'm not feeling like I feel so much pressure. I don't really know what to do about, about building this company. And just the fact that they were able to open up with me and say that to me, I appreciated it a lot. And what I appreciated even more is the fact that I could give them the outside in perspective that they didn't have at the time. And the fact that many founders out there that I've worked with have been through that same process and that it's completely normal. And the decision that you take based on that could be anything. It could be, you know, many founders have it, let's keep pushing, or many founders have it, actually, we should slow down a little bit because this is not healthy. But in general, just them knowing that many other founders had it helped them a lot because 
they didn't feel anymore as if they were the alien. They were the one who's destroying the company. And so this is just a small example to say, being the person who can help for everything non-strategy, non-day-to-day, non-operationally, uh, non-operational, I think can be equally valuable, uh, if not more in some cases. Absolutely. Sort of like, you want to be like the go-to support. Is that a good way yeah. to put it? Yeah, I would say so. And you know, sometimes it's not necessarily about negative stuff. It's actually very often, and in most cases, the opposite. So when I work with founders on fundraising, for instance, so on raising their next round after they raise with us, it's unbelievable how much of an emotional roller coaster it is. And I tend to be emotional sponge. So if someone is excited, I get so excited with them. And if someone then gets disappointed from something, from some bad news, I also like take it uh, in me as well. And what's crazy is that during fundraising rounds, it's I've never seen a roller coaster like that. So one day the founder may be literally on the moon saying, oh my God, three investors today, they were all extremely excited. It's really looking like we're going to get term sheets tomorrow morning from all three. And then you get so excited and as an investor, like you cheer, you cheer for them. And then the day after they see, oh, actually they all said no. And then like all of a sudden, like the, the atmosphere completely changes. But what I'm, what I'm uh, saying is that being there to share the emotions with them and to get them excited when it's time to get excited and to calm them down when it's time to calm down can be extremely useful. You're sort of thesis agnostic, right? Yeah, super founder-driven when it comes to what sector we look at. Absolutely. Um, but still, do you have any sort of favorite sectors or like industries that you think look stupid right now and maybe in a few years will be sort of mainstream or much bigger? Like a great example for that was, I don't know, esports like five, six years ago, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So to be completely honest, I don't really have favorite industries, but I do have sectors that because this idea of like following founders, I ended up investing in. So if you look at like my angel portfolio and now the companies that I invested in since I joined Stride, most like not most of them, but a bunch of them are in the space of like future of work and collaboration. A new wave of them are into the climate tech space. So it's not random that I wrote about both sectors. A third sector that I looked at a lot is fintech. But now, literally, as I'm telling you about these, they're fairly obvious. They're not very, they're, they're very consensus as, as sectors. I don't normally try to spot markets before they, they get adopted because I think I'm not particularly good at that. But it's definitely an, like, it's an interesting exercise. Sometimes I try to do it and I try to see whether there's any opportunity to be spotted in terms of like trend spotting, but I, I, I didn't really do it so far. It's very curious how you, you're very conscious about what your strengths are and how you play to those instead of just trying to be everything to, to everyone. Is that a conscious decision? I try. I actually try to always... Yeah, like it's not something that I necessarily thought about. It's just that I would hate to promise founders or promise anyone to help them or to add value in a certain way that I wouldn't necessarily be able to. And I realized that being very upfront as to what you lack in terms of knowledge or know-how or skill set is has actually never been has never brought has never been a stopper. How do you say like, it has never been a- Blocker? Yeah, has never been a blocker. It's always almost helped because then founders or people just see that you're not trying to be someone you're not. And so I, I think it's actually very uh, a very helpful strategy when, when it comes to conversations and, and pitching yourself. You were mentioning blockers. I'm- I don't wanna, I'm not sure if I should say obsessed, but almost there about helping more people start more companies. I think that's how you create economic growth, how you drive society forward, how you even like build new institutions. So you speak with a million founders who are starting, like just starting companies by, by sort of as a force of 
investing in pre-seed. So what do you think are some of the biggest like blockers or bottlenecks like holding more people back from starting companies? I actually don't think I have a good answer for that because I've never taken time to think about that. What? How do you think about it? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And when I used to, I, I like to ask quite a bit. I think it's sort of a multi-answered question because I, I could pinpoint to a bunch of different things. Like one very obvious one is like access to capital, right? More capital would probably mean more, more founders. Others are like maybe not in Europe, but definitely in places like the US or maybe Argentina, like access to healthcare, right? One of, but sort of, I, I try to sort of group them in two things. One is sort of how do you de-risk founders so it actually makes sense to go and start a company? And there are a bunch of ways of doing that. One is providing capital. Another one is sort of making founding a startup useful for future career prospects in case you fail, right? So if you go through YC and you fail, then or through EF, then you could probably land a job in one of the other companies in the network, right? Uh, so capital, healthcare, access to like a plan B, like those are some interesting ones. But the other one that I think it's it's very sort of specific to Europe is how do you make founding a company an acceptable path for people? So we were talking about how founding a startup is a very stupid way of making money. Like normally, like in Europe, the, the typical sort of career path is finance, investment banking, you, you investment banking, research, like research, academia, like that stuff. Uh, that's sort of the default path for most people in Europe. And I think that's slightly different to, let's say, the U.S. or other emerging markets like Latin America. And for different reasons, right? In the U.S., like at least in New York and the Valley, like being a founder, even if you fail, it's celebrated. And in sort of places like Argentina or Brazil, being a founder is the only way of sort of creating something and, and having a great life, right? Like there's no sort of career path that you can do where you, at the end of that career path, you get a house and a white picket fence and just the dog and your family, right? Like the, you can't achieve that through the traditional way. So building stuff is the only way to get there. So you're forced by sort of circumstances to do that. And I think in Europe, that's, that's sort of not the case. It's starting to become more and more acceptable to become a founder to more and more sort of default. No. But I think that's one of the other things, like at least in Europe, how, how do you make it acceptable to people to, to start companies, right? And not go to work, go work, I know, at McKinsey. 100%. What, what you just said actually reminds me of, of, of a joke that my former uh, colleague Usama at the family always used to make, which is that five years ago, when he would tell his friends that he was an, an entrepreneur and a founder, they would answer, I'm so sorry that you're unemployed. Whereas now, if in 2020, if you tell people that you're a founder and CEO, everyone is like, oh, you're so cool. So yeah, it's definitely changing. Yeah, yeah. I think that's very cool. And the more we can do to point people in that direction, the the better. So it's, but it's very unclear how to do it, but still. Anyway, like, thanks, sort of, thanks for turning turning that back into, into, into me. So you love food. And I have some intel on you. I've been asking around. Uh, <laughs> nice. what's, what's the restaurant that would make you fall in love with London? Oh, that's a great question and a very difficult one to answer. So what restaurant would help people fall in love with London? Hmm. Fuck, I have so many. I have like thousands. Okay, give it, let me go through my list one second, okay? Uh, you also have a list of restaurants? I have a list of restaurants per, per, per city. I have, yeah, yeah, per city. <laughs> London, okay, so, oh, okay, actually I have one. So as an Italian, I obviously have to answer as a, I have to answer with, with an Italian restaurant. And so my one answer would be Portobello Garden Cafe, which is actually a lunch spot, very hidden and fairly secretive. But it's off Portobello Road, which is the famous Notting Hill Street or like Market Street. And it's a very hidden gem because, you know, Portobello Road is this extremely busy street with people walking around every single day. And you cannot really, you can barely see where you're going when you follow the flow of people, especially during the food market and and market there. But then 
there is this place which is you have to go through a store of like antiques and if you manage to like go through it then you get to the other side and you get into this little magical italian deli restaurant with lots of like italian foods hanging from from the the ceilings and all these like little italian ladies serving you like the most amazing italian sandwiches <laughs> so it's it's really it's an experience and i think it's although it's italian it's very london very cool man and so let me give you an extra spin to this <laughs> if you could invite any three people that are alive to just have lunch with you over there who would it be and why Ooh, that's a difficult question um all right so one would be for sure herman hesse as he's one of my favorite writers and i have so many questions for him in particular i'd be really curious to see how he would analyze humans in 2020 versus how he did it through his work 100 years ago um second one would be lorenzo de medici uh, as i see the medici family as probably the first real venture capitalists in the world uh you know having supported Michelangelo and many other amazing artists so early on um, they really were special at spotting talent so I'd want to ask them for their tips and tricks for sure um, and then last but not least I would say David Attenborough as I love animals and nature and I'm somewhat jealous that he spent his whole life and career around animals and nature I'm going to circle back to the beginning of the conversation, which was uh, the content that you put out there. Um, one of your recent sort of guides is on breaking into venture capital. Will you write that guide and sort of what are some tips and tricks you have for people who are thinking about venture capital? And maybe sort of everyone has tips and tricks to get into venture capital, but maybe a couple of reasons why you should not get into, get into venture capital, maybe? Yeah. And you asked why I wrote it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's the it's actually one of the most um, egoistical pieces that I've ever written. It was very self-serving because I was getting, and I'm sure like most uh, VCs out there uh, do the same. And I was getting so many questions on like LinkedIn. So LinkedIn requests of people adding me and asking me, "Hey, how did you break into venture capital?" or how did you go from banking to venture capital? Do you have any guidance? And please, let's hop on a call. And obviously, I would love to help these people. And so I would often hop on calls with them. But then I realized that the things that I would end up saying were always the same. And so I thought, why do I just not write this big guide and, and share all of my knowledge once and for all? And so that's what I did. And now I can always answer those requests with Hey, I wrote about this. Here's the link. <laughs> and in terms of the, the questions, so tips and tricks. Yeah, I guess like it's it's becoming more and more possible for people who do not necessarily have crazy analytical skills or years and years of previous experience to to break into venture capital. And I think that's a great thing. This said, it's it's still extremely competitive. So there's hundreds of people competing for very limited spots. And so in my head, probably if I had to like summarize the, the, the guide in, into one sentence is that you have to try and cut through the noise by coming across as very unique and coming across as very unique could, could be achieved in many different ways. It could be achieved by approaching VCs in a different way. So not applying to the websites, but perhaps preparing a personal pitch deck where rather than pitching a company, you pitch yourself and why you would be an amazing addition to, let's say, Index Ventures. Or it could be being unique because you create content about space and about planets and about space tech in a way that no one else in the world has done and in a way that makes the VCs that you want to work for think that you would be an incredible addition to the team. So it could be many different things and hacks that I try to put together as a list, but it's all about really trying to come across as original and trying to answer the positively to the question. So trying to let VCs answer positively to the question, would this person 
be able to bring us companies and bring us value that we wouldn't be able to create ourselves or companies that we wouldn't be able to find ourselves if if they joined us very very cool very very cool and um, then you asked me about what what should keep people away from from being a vc right right because i think vc is one of those like hot industries right now like there's this allure around VC and sort of a consequence of that is that many people are driven by VC for the, let's say the status instead of the actual work of being a VC. So who should not be a VC maybe? Yeah. So I speak about this with my friends all the time because sometimes they, like we, we laugh about the fact that my job is about having calls every day with like similar people with founders and with other VCs and they're like, but like, when do you actually work? Like, what do you do? Then I, I try to get them to understand that, you know, it's, it fits many, like every job fits a certain personality type. And I think one shouldn't be a VC if they feel the need to have full control over processes and have full control um, over companies, let's say, and I have friends like that. So I have friends who literally would go crazy at the idea of seeing so many different projects at the same time, but not being able to set the direction of a company beyond just giving advice. And, and so those type of personalities would not necessarily fit with the job, which I think makes perfect sense. It's great to acknowledge that. And it's great to, as we were saying at the beginning, to drive your career towards what you think fits your personality. Yeah, that that was sort of advice. I know you don't like to give advice, but that's sort of some advice to prospective like investors. Now, what's some advice you'd give to pre-seed founders looking to raise their first round? So to early stage founders, uh, pre-seed founders. Yeah, yeah, pre looking yeah. to raise their first round. What advice would I give pre-seed founders looking to raise their first round? So I would actually advise them to depending on how hot and consensus their company is, I would advise them to start engaging with angel investors because of a bunch of reasons. So first reason, so I've done a lot of work since I joined Stride and also before at The Family, trying to connect with angel investors and connect them with each other and, and, and see how they work uh, because I find it such a fascinating phenomenon in, in the startup world, angel investing in general. And I think starting to raise from angel investors, first of all, builds up your pitching muscle without having uh, to get re rejected from VCs first. And the reason why I say this is, is because VCs all talk to each other all the time. So the, the best way, if you want the whole world to know something, is to tell a VC and to tell them not to tell anyone. <laughs> because then the whole world will know about it. It's literally such a high school. Like if you have a secret and you tell your VC friend, in one day, your next VC friend in Berlin will know about it. So as a consequence of that, if you're a founder and you start pitching too early to maybe five VCs or 10 VCs, and then they all pass on you for a certain reason, the whole VC world will know about that. And then they will see you as a startup that is not able to raise money. Whereas if you start with angels, angels don't really have that effect, mostly because there are so many angels out there and anyone could be an angel. Previous, like a Goldman Sachs a managing director could be an angel in the same way a former VC could be an angel. And so there's no information spillover effect there. And secondly, angels are just extremely helpful. If you get like three or four on board, they could then already start helping you maybe like improve your products while you're running by your fundraising process, or they could help you by being your champions with the funds that you're trying to raise from and a bunch of other, other things that they're always happy to do. Very cool. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Like, thank you <laughs> so much, Pietro. It was a pleasure chatting. My pleasure, Gon. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, this is Gon's again. If you enjoyed this episode of the Seed Table Podcast, please let me know by leaving an honest review. If you want to get more good stuff from me, subscribe to SeedTable.com. SeedTable is a weekly newsletter on European technology. It goes out every Friday morning and it's read by thousands of founders, investors, and operators. That's all for today. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. 
Ciao.